Our scripture for this morning comes to us from Acts of the Apostles, the 17th chapter, beginning with the 16th verse. I invite you to listen for God's word for you. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we'd like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Oropagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of their places where they should live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we have come this morning to hear a word from you. So speak to us now as only a living God can. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. When I graduated from seminary, our commencement speaker that year was a pastor who told about his early experiences in ministry and how it shaped his preaching. He moved to his first congregation after graduating from seminary, and he moved into a home which was next door to an elder in his church, a retired U.S. Army general, who eventually would become to him like a second father. He was a source of wisdom and encouragement. It was a hot August Sunday in Hinesville on the coast of Georgia. And this young pastor preached a magnificent sermon. Duly footnoted, properly exegeted on the bodily resurrection of Christ. Being unable to exhaust his wisdom on the subject in that sermon, he also prepared a 28-page paper on the bodily resurrection of Christ, which he had the ushers distribute to the worshipers as they left the sanctuary. 
So as people passed by the young pastor at the door of the sanctuary, he remembered how they kind of nervously shook his hand and clutched their paper in their hands and sped off to their cars. That same afternoon, his next-door neighbor, General Frazier, called and asked the pastor if he would join him for breakfast on Monday morning at the Georgian Terrace Cafe. They met, and as they ate, the general began and was just extremely encouraging. He said, you know, Hinesville has never had such a hard-working preacher And everyone is so proud and so pleased that you have come to our town as our pastor. The young pastor thanked him for his kindness and thinking privately, well, it's obvious he's a general. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. He's so perceptive and he's so wise. The general went on to say, in my judgment and in my lifetime, I don't know that I've ever heard a smarter preacher. And again, the young pastor thanked him for the compliment and his kindness and secretly kind of wished he could add another star to his friend's rank. Then the general said, I want to talk to you about your preaching. We we really don't need all these alternatives you're giving us. Now just consider the scene here for a minute. This 25-year-old preacher fresh out of seminary is about to give a 65-year-old three-star general a piece of his mind. The young pastor said, General, I have the courage of my convictions, and as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to make people think. And with that, the general put down his knife and fork, and he looked across the table and looked that pastor straight in the eye, and he said, Son, Let me put it to you another way. You are boring us to death. And that message cut right through that young pastor's defenses. And it transformed his ministry. Sensing that the general really was a friend and not an enemy, the young man asked, what do you think I should do? Well, said the general, I would not presume to tell you what you should do. But I do have a suggestion. Do you remember yesterday in worship when you preached that the Keynes family, Willard and Margie and their four children, were seated right down in the right side in the pew in front of you? You know, Willard runs the filling station just across from the courthouse square, I would think when you stand up to preach, you ought to ask yourself this question. Will what I have to say today help Willard Keynes pump gas on Monday morning? That young preacher learned a valuable lesson that day that the gospel of Christ can and must engage real life. Life filled with joy and with pain, with uncertainty and with struggle, success and failure, discouragement and difficulty. That young pastor went on to serve a number of other churches. At the time of his death, many years later, he was the pastor of the largest Presbyterian Church in the denomination. Reverend Dr. Frank Harrington 
the pastor of the Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He was our commencement speaker that year. Every preacher has to learn that context matters. What works in a seminary class isn't going to work necessarily in a congregation. Preachers have to begin by listening to the context and relying upon trusted voices, trusted interpreters like the general. Now, during this pandemic, our context has changed. I mean, here I am preaching to a camera, and you're all adapting at home, adapting to new schedules. You're working from home. You're wearing many hats. Many of you are teaching your children in addition to trying to do your jobs and adjusting to a reduced world. And like Millard, excuse me, like Willard and Margie Keynes, we need something that helps us, helps us figure out just how to function on Monday mornings. Many of us are looking for some kind of insight into how we can live in these changing and sometimes boring and often anxiety-producing times. Now, I don't think we need a 28-page paper on the bodily resurrection of Christ, but we do need a strong foundation for moral action. Good ethics depends upon a solid foundation. Perhaps you read recently in an article in the Wall Street Journal by Rebecca Goldstein entitled, What Would Aristotle Do in a Pandemic? She reflects in the article on our current crisis, but does so through a philosophical and a historical lens. She writes, Though COVID-19 is unique in many ways, plague and pestilence are as old as humanity as are the tensions between the rights and interests of individuals and those of the community. Great minds have pondered these tensions for millennia, and we can learn from the very best of them. The one I want to lift up from that article today is this, coming from Immanuel Kant. He held that there were certain acts that were intrinsically right, others intrinsically wrong, independent of their consequences, which are often too complicated for us to actually calculate. So we do well. So how do we tell whether an act is intrinsically worthy, according to Kant? Well, he offers two tests. The first is universalization. Behind each act lurks this hidden maxim that tacitly governs the person's decision to carry out the act. For Kant, we can judge a moral act by seeing whether its maxim could be universalized as a rule for all to follow. Let me give you an example. It's the one that she uses. Consider panic buying that this pandemic has prompted. The person who buys a few extra rolls of toilet paper in fear of a shortage is not by that very act harming anyone, but he or she is acting on the maxim that if there's a potential shortage, stock up. 
The rule flunks the universalization test. The rule flunks the universalization test. Regardless of the commodity, when everyone hoards it, it creates the very shortage that people are hedging against. So according to Kant, tempering a person's self-interest with recognition of the self-interest of others is fundamental to moral action in the world. In other words, act in ways that if everybody acted that way, this universalization principle, the world would be a much better place. Useful philosophy that might actually help Willard and Margie Keynes when they go to the grocery store on Monday morning. Acts 17 provides some insight into Paul's strategy for interacting with the surrounding cultural context. Paul engages the philosophers in the center for learning in the ancient world. But he begins by finding a point of connection. A shared beginning, some common ground with his listeners. There's an old maxim for preachers that they won't care about what you know until they know that you care. Paul begins by listening and observing closely the context in which he finds himself. Someone once said, we have two ears and one mouth, and it is perhaps the way we should listen and speak in relative proportion. Now, Athens was probably centuries past its prime when the Apostle Paul arrived. But it still provided quite an impressive array of Hellenistic treasures, art, poetry, drama, lively philosophical and religious discussion. In short, Athens was a thriving multicultural marketplace. According to Robert Dunham, to understand both Paul's speech and the response to it, one must first have a sense of the way religious conversations took place in Athens. The Hellenistic religious world Paul encountered was very pluralistic. In fact, it makes the multicultural religious combinations of our own time seem rather bland. In something of a precursor to globalization, the Hellenistic world had been unified by the expansive conquests of Alexander the Great, And as a result, cultural habits and assumptions and beliefs began to flow in two directions. Some of the finest of Greek culture was exported to the far corners of the then known world. And from those expeditions, Alexander also sent or brought back to Athens the best of what he found. And the cultural flow evidently included a steady procession of foreign deities. For by the time Paul stood in the markets at Athens, a great many religions were coexistent at the center of Hellenistic worlds. Tolerance of foreign divinities was apparently quite remarkable. As people moved to Greece, they brought their gods with them, and they were welcomed. One of my professors from Princeton, Joel Marcus, notes, quote, the Greeks... And later the Romans, rather than telling the immigrants that they would have to worship the Greek and Roman gods exclusively, 
adopted the practical solution of saying, all right, you continue to worship your gods and goddesses and we'll worship them too and you'll worship ours. That way no one's God was slighted and everyone was happy. End quote. Paul understood that context matters. He writes elsewhere, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. And to those under the law I became as one under the law so that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law I became as one outside the law. And to the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. He writes. The challenge, it seems to me, in a pluralistic world and context, with so many different moral philosophies out there and so many different takes on religion, we can become incredibly indecisive in life. Don't commit to anything, remain fluid. When in Rome, do as the Romans. But what you worship, what you believe, the core of who you are, it makes a difference in how you live your life and why you live your life. Athens may have been the marketplace of ideas in the ancient world. Paul found common ground there. And wherever you are, you have to find common ground. So they agreed that God gives life to everything. And Paul quotes from one of their poets affirming that we're all God's offspring. And he agreed with them that it makes absolutely no sense to think that you can make a God out of wood or stone. So Paul begins with some common understanding. He doesn't attack attack their uncertainty about God. He doesn't dismiss all of their ideas as worthless trash he didn't lay into them as guilty sinners the early church welcomed rather than rejected those who felt uncertain about God they kept the doors of their homes and the doors of their hearts open to those who were undecided about the Lord So it kind of bothers me when I hear people say that they feel unwelcomed in church because they cannot accept some of the specifics of Christian faith. Somewhere they got the idea that the people who go to church are totally convinced and totally committed. And therefore, they look with suspicion at other people's uncertainties. But if you really knew the mixture of belief and unbelief that we in the church bring with us, you might just be surprised. The people who worship in the church from a variety of religious traditions and experiences, our unity is not because of unanimity. We just want to know if God can give meaning to our lives in this world where a lot of our friends call faith in the Lord nonsense. In this way, the church then and now is not too different. 
You know, one reason why I'm kind of grateful for this new context of having to preach online is that I know there are many people who are tuning in who might otherwise not come to church. I mean, I know that you don't have to worry now about where you're going to park or what you're going to wear. You don't have to worry. You don't know the drill. You won't know whether to stand up or sit down at the right time, reveal your lack of exposure and experience to the church. And you don't have to wonder whether your agnostic friends might see you and ridicule you. You don't even have to worry that you might be seated in somebody else's pew. The great thing about this new context is that the threshold for checking out the church has become so low, it's barely a speed bump rather than an obstacle. You can watch from home as you're doing now. You can see for yourself whether there's anything worth tuning into here. Now, I got to say, it puts a little pressure on those of us who are preachers. But as I said earlier, every preacher has to learn that context matters. And the context we find ourselves in in this pandemic allows us a chance to experience church something like it existed in the first century. They met in homes. There were no sanctuaries like this. There were no well-developed systematic theologies or churches. They were simply drawn to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it caused them to rethink how they lived their lives. And it, more importantly, caused them to think why they lived their lives. And in the process, they were simply drawn to one another. They shared their resources with one another. And they broke bread together, sharing and caring for others and learning together what it actually means to follow Jesus Christ. You know, we can't forever remain indecisive in life. We can't accumulate interesting philosophies and ideas and never actually have to rely upon any of them to put any of the weight of our life on what we believe. So I invite you to ask yourself, if you were to give yourself to Christ in a deeper and more meaningful way, would that diminish your life? Or would it enlarge it? Would it enrich your life or would it impoverish it? Would you get hold of the very best of yourself and him or the worst? The world still seems so uncertain and undecided about this Lord. But this is the Lord we declare. Jesus Christ. The living presence of Christ, our Lord. So though in this new context we are distant physically due to social isolation, the context still allows us to be together online and we can still break bread together on this first Sunday of the month. We're still the church gathered 
worshiping. So I invite you to get your bread and your juice or water or cup ready so that when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together at the conclusion of this service, you'll be ready. Like the early church, we're going to share this sacrament in our homes today with the prayer on our lips. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Thanks be to God. Amen.